I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. Now, I know you may be saying, well, Pastor, last week you were in Mark 6, and now you've jumped all the way to Mark 14. Absolutely. Very perceptive of you. You see, it's the the Easter season, and I'm I'm doing a little mini-series within a bigger series entitled Ransomed. And this Sunday, we're going to look at Mark chapter 14. Next Sunday, Mark chapter 15. And then Easter Sunday, Mark chapter 16. Today, I want to speak to you on this subject, the cup. If I were to ask you to list the top three epic moments in history, what would make your list? Some would say, well, it's the Industrial Revolution. Some would say it's World War I, World War II. Some would say it's the Mayflower Compact. Some would say it's the, the founding of the United States of America. Others would say it's putting a man on the moon. What would make your list? This morning, I Googled that. I I said, what's the top epic moments in human history? And I looked at several of the responses. You know what I noticed? Not one single one of the ones that I looked at mentioned the name Jesus. Do you know what? They, They mentioned the birth of Buddha. They mentioned the birth of Confucius. But not a single word about the greatest person who's ever walked on the face of this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, I want us to wrap our hearts and minds around one of the most epic moments in the life of Jesus. It's what happened to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, here's the situation. It's late Thursday night, and before long, Thursday night would turn into Friday morning. Jesus has already established the Lord's Supper in the upper room. He has taught his disciples in John 14 through 17. In fact, I would encourage you to go back sometime and just read through John 14 through 17 because that's what Jesus taught his disciples after He instituted the Lord's Supper, and before he got to Gethsemane. It's some marvelous, rich truths there in those chapters. Judas has already gone to betray Jesus. Jesus and his disciples are making their way to Gethsemane. Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe this epic moment in the life of our Lord. And I've got to be honest with you, as I studied this passage this week, And we're going to look at Mark chapter 14, verse 32 through 42. As I studied this passage, I almost felt like when I preached it, I need to take my feet off because I feel like I'm standing on holy ground. And I would encourage every person within the sound of my voice, if you're live streaming this service today, if you're in this room or or the fellowship hall, if you watch it, by TV next week, I I would encourage you to sit up and pay very close attention and listen to what God would reveal to you today and approach it with a reverential awe in your heart. 
hear the word of God. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I've prayed. Now, the name Gethsemane means oil press. It's talking about olive oil here. It was an olive garden located on the Mount of Olives. Evidently, it was owned by a, a wealthy friend, and this wealthy friend gave Jesus and his disciples access to this special little garden, and it was a favorite retreat spot for the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 18, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, When Jesus has spoken these words, he went forth with, with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Verse 2, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So it was one of his favorite places to, to gather with his disciples and to spend time with them. Uh, upon their arrival to Gethsemane, Jesus told eight of his disciples to stand at the gate of the garden. While he himself took Peter, James, and John, and they went deeper into the garden itself. In verse 33 of Mark 14, the Bible says, and he took with him Peter, James, and John, now listen to this, and began to be very distressed and troubled. Peter, James, and John were privileged to be with Jesus when he was transfigured before them, and they saw his glory. But they're also going to be with him when they see a level of distress and anguish in their Lord and Master that they had never seen in the three years that they had been following him. Mark informs us that Jesus was distressed. That word distressed means to be alarmed or to be amazed. The word trouble speaks of severe stress and anguish. Can't you just feel the intensity of this moment? Jesus experienced acute emotional pain like no one has ever had to face in human history. In fact, as we shall see, the agony was so severe that it almost killed Jesus before he made it to the cross. Listen to the words of Jesus. Verse 34, he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Peter, James, and John had been with the Lord for approximately three years. They had seen him in all kinds of situations. They had seen him when he did wonderful miracles. They had seen him when the crowds were fawning all over him, just wanting to get close to him. They had seen him show compassion and love to people that rarely had been shown compassion and love. They saw him touch lepers when nobody else would touch lepers. 
But I can tell you, friend, they had never seen Jesus like they saw him this very night. He was deeply grieved. That, that pictures him being overwhelmed, almost overwhelmed by what was happening inside him. Luke gives us this insight in Luke 22, 44. He said, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. The impact on Jesus was such that his capillaries began to dilate and his capillaries began to burst and blood oozed out the pores of his skin. That's how deeply grieved and troubled and distressed and in such agony that the Lord was. He was on the verge of death. But what was causing this kind of reaction from Jesus? Was it because he knew that Peter would deny him soon? Was it because he knew that his disciples, all of them would forsake him and run away from him and he would be left all alone to face his accusers? Was it because he feared the scourging? Was it because he feared the cross? Was it because he feared the mockery and the scorning that he would receive from people? Was it because he was going to die? While many of his followers through the ages have faced immense persecution, many of his followers through the ages have died horrible deaths because they refused to renounce the Lord Jesus Christ. Could it be that Jesus was weaker than those who would follow him later? Perish the thought. Mark 14, 35, and he went a little beyond them. And he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. Do you see that reference to the hour? It refers to a specific time set by God Almighty. It refers to the accomplishment of the purpose of Jesus coming to this earth in the first place. And what was his purpose? Why did the Son of God leave the glory of heaven? Why did he leave the adulation of the angelic beings and all of the saints of all the ages? Why did he, he leave their hallelujahs and their praises to be born by a virgin, to become a human being, fully God, fully man? Why would he do that? Well, Jesus tells us himself in Mark 10, 45, he said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, now listen, and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, the whole human race have been kidnapped by Satan. The whole human race 
was plunged into a depth of sin. And there was no one who could pay the ransom price to free them except Jesus. Throughout his ministry, Jesus reminded people that his hour had not yet come. You can read that several times as he related to people during his ministry. But now it was here. It was time. It was time for him to pay the ransom. And that gives us a clue as to why Jesus was so distressed, why he was so filled with agony, why he was so overwhelmed. Peter, James, and John must have sensed the presence of the powers of darkness. I I know that Jesus did. Satan and his demonic allies launched repeated attacks on our precious Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke informs us in Luke twenty-two fifty-three. while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. The spiritual warfare that Jesus experienced made his, his early temptation after his baptism seem like a walk in the park. The evil one was employing his diabolical power to keep Jesus from going to the cross. I wonder how many people in churches today think that Satan's M.O. was was to put Jesus on the cross. No, no. His M.O. was to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Look at your Bible in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Jesus had asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say that I am? They gave several answers. Some say that you're Elijah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked them, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And Jesus bragged on him and, 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 and said that, This testimony, this truth would be the cornerstone of his church. And then Peter turned around and Jesus was telling them that that he was going to be crucified and he would be raised from the dead. And, and, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around, verse 33, and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, what? Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man. Let me tell you, friend, Satan wanted to do everything he could with his diabolical dark powers to keep the Son of God from going to the cross of Calvary. Why, if he could keep Jesus from going to the cross, then his messianic mission would fail. The gospel would be eliminated. Hell would be full of people, and heaven would be absolutely devoid of people. There would be nobody in heaven except God and the angels. Jesus responded to the assaults of the powers of darkness by turning to God in prayer, a deep, deep time of prayer. The writer of Hebrews observed in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, and I believe he was speaking of this time in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Nobody has ever prayed with such passion as Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Luke tells us that God even sent an angel to strengthen the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything gets a little clearer for us as we wonder why Jesus is experiencing such turmoil in his heart, in his emotions, in his soul. Verse 36 says, and he was saying, and here's the prayer Jesus was praying. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That, that term, Abba, is an Aramaic term, and it's a term of endearment, and it literally, literally means daddy, papa. It, it speaks of the intimate relationship that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, had with his heavenly father. He was the beloved son of God. And do you know that Jesus even commended this same term to us as disciples for us to pray? Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. You say, Pastor, I didn't know that we could pray with that kind of intimacy with God. Look at verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Do you know that you can have that kind of intimacy in your prayer life on a day-to-day -day basis with the God of creation? And, and then Jesus prayed something else. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. If anyone in all of creation knew about the omnipotence of God, Jesus did. And he said, God, you can do anything. Could redemption be accomplished without the cross? I wonder if that was the question that was floating around in Jesus' mind. And then, look at this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Now, look at this, remove this cup from me. Remove it from me. Now, once we glance at that cup, we can understand why Jesus was going through what Jesus was going through. We can understand why he was grieved to the point of death. We can understand why agony filled his heart and his soul. In the Old Testament, the cup represented uh, the, the judgment and the wrath of God. In Jeremiah 25, 15, the Bible says, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So Jesus looked within that cup as only Jesus could look within that cup. And he saw all the putrid sin of the human race. He saw the blasphemy. 
He saw the profanity. He saw the adultery. He saw the homosexuality, the transgenderism, the unforgiveness, the anger, the rebellion, the abortions, divorce, abuse. And he was stunned with the fact that he, the sinless son of God, would have to bear that sin on the cross of Calvary. He who was perfectly holy would have to be made sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus looked within that cup, and he must have been horrified at the level of sin that he would be forced to deal with. But he looked within that cup, he saw something else. He saw the wrath of Almighty God. And he knew that the plan of redemption meant that he would have to face wave after wave of the wrath of God when he offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. That's why Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all of eternity, the perfect unity between God the Father and God the Son was broken. And there was a, there was a, a separation, an isolation between God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus became sin for us. And, and God poured out his wrath on his Son, his eternal wrath on his Son for our sin. When I was studying that this this week, I, I thought about the sins that I've committed that Jesus saw in that cup. Have you thought about that? Not just the sins of the Jewish people, not just the sins of the people in the first century, but the sins of mankind. Adam and Eve's sins. Abraham's sins, Isaac's sin, Jacob's sin, David's sin with Bathsheba, David's murder of Uriah, my sin, your sin. And I'll tell you, it ought to drive us to our knees in humility when we think that the dear Son of God would become sin for us and bear the eternal wrath of God for us. Mm. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You see, I want you to understand something, friend. Only the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary would satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. I love what Jesus said next. He said, yet not what I will, 
But what you will now understand, the devil was using every power that he had at his disposal to get Jesus to choose his way over God the Father's way. But Jesus said, no, not my will be done, but yours be done. Now, submission to the Father's will that characterized Jesus' entire life and ministry. In John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In Philippians 2, 8, the Bible says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was a matter of obedience for Jesus here in this dark moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. In surrender to God's will, Jesus would therefore experience an abandonment and darkness of cosmic proportions as he suffered the terror of hell on the cross for us. For the first time in all of eternity, he would be alienated from God the Father. Look at verse 37 and 38. So Jesus is separated from his disciples about a stone's throw, the Bible says. He's been pouring out his heart and soul for an hour, two hours, we don't know. And he comes back to his disciples to check on them. In verse 37 and 38, and he came and found them sleeping. What did he tell them to do when he left them? Pray, stay alert, pray. And he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon. That's Peter's old name, by the way. Remember, Jesus changed his name to Peter when he made that confession of Jesus in Caesarea Philippi. But when Peter acted like the old Peter, Jesus called him by his old name. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This amazes me. With all that Jesus was undergoing, with all of the, 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 the emotional stuff that was going on inside the Lord Jesus, still, he cared for his disciples. And he wouldn't dare give up on them. He came to check on them. He found them asleep. They too would face a spiritual attack, and it would be ferocious. And Jesus knew that their flesh was weak, and they needed to turn to God in prayer like never before. In Mark chapter 14, verse 39 through 40, again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Luke tells us that they, that they went to sleep because of sorrow that they were going through. I think those disciples sensed something that was going on here that absolutely befuddled them 
You see, at first, they thought that Jesus would be a, an earthly king, that he would rid the Jewish people of Roman rule and oppression. Jesus had told them, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And that was all coming home to them. And they were grappling with this, this, this thing that was happening to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus came to them and evidently asked them, why are you still asleep? And they didn't have an answer. They had no excuse whatsoever. Once again, verse 41, and he came the third time. So three different times the Lord Jesus separated from Peter, James, and John about a stone's throw, and he cried out to God, and he prayed the same thing every time. Abba, Father, if it be your will, Let this cup pass from me. And three different times, the father indicated to his son that he would have to drink the cup to its bitter dregs. So he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. And behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. I'll tell you what, the Son of God emerged from the Garden of Gethsemane triumphant. He was triumphant because he submitted his will to the will of God the Father. He said, Father, not my will be done, but yours be done. He resisted the powers of darkness who would do anything in their power to get him to try something else other than the cross. The hour had come for Jesus to offer himself as the one and only sacrifice for sinful human beings. Verse 42, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. I don't know if Jesus heard the sound of this mob coming toward the Garden of Gethsemane. You, you say, well, how would Judas know where they were? Well, John's gospel told us, remember we read it a few moments ago, John's gospel told us that Judas was with the disciples many times when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was one of Jesus' favorite spots. He knew where they were. And he brought a mob with him. And they were armored up and they were weaponed up. There was about a cohort of Roman soldiers. That's up to 600 there was the, 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 the temple police was there. The Sanhedrin was there. The Pharisees were there. And they were coming as a mob to arrest the Son of God. I love John's gospel. John's gospel says that when Jesus met that crowd, by the way, Jesus didn't take his disciples to go out the back door of the Garden of Gethsemane and run away from them. He went to face them. And John's gospel tells us 
that Jesus said, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. And Jesus said this. He said, I am he. And the Bible says that every one of them fell flat on the ground. I am he, the son of God, the soon-to-be savior of the world. I am he who has chosen God's will over my will. I am he who will drink the bitter cup to its dregs. I am he who has looked into that cup and seen the perverted sins of the human race. I am he who has looked into that cup and have seen the wrath of Almighty God, and I'm willing to drink it. to save people's souls, to pay the ransom price. Now, what insights can we gain from this amazing story? Number one, I think we can see an insight here about the holiness of Jesus. As he gazed into the cup, his soul recoiled in horror at the perverted sinfulness of the human heart. It was a testimony to his holiness. As believers, should we not live with a passion for holiness? Does the Bible not tell us as believers to be holy as he is holy? It does, doesn't it? The Bible says that we are to be holy in every area of our lives. Can I ask you a question? Is that the way your life is tracking? Is it? Do you have a passion for holiness? A passion to please Jesus above anyone or anything else? Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, I got this thing in my life. And the Holy Spirit is wearing me out about it. I want to encourage you today to come to this altar and bow before the King Jesus and say to him, Lord Jesus, give me victory over this sin. I want to be holy. You say, Pastor, you don't know what my sin is. Well, you don't know the power of my Savior. He can set you free. He has the power to forgive you and cleanse you and separate that from you as far as the east is. Well, he can take an addict and set an addict free just like that if he chooses to. Are you ready for Jesus to make you holy today? The second insight I think we see here is the submission of Jesus. The willingness of Jesus to submit to the Father's will should certainly serve as an example for us. There are moments in our lives, there, there are times in our lives when, when our will comes into conflict with the will of God, does it not? Oh, you're so holy. <laughs> Do, does it not? Yes. Yes. And what do we do in those moments? Do we say, I'm going to do it my way? And we take the Burger King approach. 
Or do we humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father? And do we say, not my will be done, but yours be done? I'll tell you, friend, if you want to walk in spiritual victory in your life, you have to come to the point that every time there's an intersection between your will and God the Father's will, that you choose God the Father's will and you choose to obey him and not do what you want to do. And there's some of you in this room, and you're at that intersection point today. For me, I was 30 years old when God called me to be a preacher. There's an intersection between my will, being a coach, or God's will, being a preacher. And Darlene and I prayed, and and we submitted ourselves to the Father's will. I had no idea that one day I'd be the pastor of Carville First Baptist Church. I can tell you this, I wouldn't have it any other way. So are, are you facing that intersection crisis between your will and God's will? Would you come to this altar today and what, where, whatever the, the intersection point is for you, just come and just say to the Father, Father, I just want to do what you want me to do. I'll tell you, you walk out of here in victory Number three thing I think we can learn from this story is the compassion of Jesus. I I just can't get over the fact that Jesus was going through all of this. He was grieved to the point of death. He was sweating great drops of blood. He was distressed and troubled. He was full of agony, yet he cared enough about his disciples to come check on them and to instruct them and exhort them to pray and stay alert. Can I I just say this to you? There is no one in human, there's no one within the sound of my voice who has ever been through a darker moment than what Jesus went through in Gethsemane. You say, Pastor, you don't know what I've gone through. You've had someone real close to you die tragically. It was so dark. You've seen a, a son or daughter go off into a, a, a life of rebellion. Pastor, it's so dark. You're suffering from depression, and it's dark. And I tell you, my friend, there's nothing you'll ever go through that is darker than what Jesus went through in Gethsemane. I love what the Bible says in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, look look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And you're going through a dark moment. And I'm telling you, the sympathetic, glorious Savior is here to minister to you and to help you and give you grace to come out of this time of darkness. 
I'm going to invite you to come to the altar here in just a moment and bow your knee to Jesus and just tell him what you're going through and ask him to help you. And he says right here that he'll give you mercy and he'll give you grace to help you in your time of need. Number four thing I learned from this story is an insight about the gospel of Jesus. This story highlights the fact that there's only one way to be saved. Just one. And that is through faith in the Lord Jesus. He paid the eternal penalty for your sin. He bore the eternal wrath of God for you so that you wouldn't have to. He was raised from the dead in glorious victory over Satan, sin, and death. God forbid that you for even one moment would think that you can be saved through some, through some false religion or that you could be saved by, by trying to make sure that your good works outweigh your bad works or some effort of your own. Jesus is your only hope of salvation. There, listen, when Jesus went to the garden and he went apart from the disciples, he said, Lord, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. God the Father said there's no other way. There's no other way to be saved but through Jesus. And I want to invite you today to repent of your sin, to turn to Jesus in saving faith. I'll tell you, friend, he'll save you and deliver you. I'm going to invite our staff to come, and we're going to be here. Uh, Joshua, you and your team come, and we're going to, have a time of invitation. And I want to encourage you, if you'd like to talk to one of our staff members about being saved, you come to one of them. If you would like to come to this altar and to submit yourself to the Lord Jesus and ask him to clean up an air of your life that, that's not holy, you come. Or, or, or if your will is intersected with God the Father's will, you come to this altar and say, Lord, I choose your will over my will. Or, or if you're going through a difficult time in your life and it's dark, you come. And I'll tell you, the compassionate Savior will give you grace and mercy to help in this time of need. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do an amazing work in our hearts today and that great victories would be won here as the one that was won in the Garden of Gethsemane by the Lord Jesus himself. Lord, we love you. We believe in your power. Work in our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and, and let's worship and you come as God leads you.